0: My name is John Orcutt. I have the honor to introduce uh, Vice Admiral Paul Gaffney. Our personal paths crossed 45 years ago in Annapolis. Uh, I was a member of the class of 66 and Paul was in 68. Uh, Paul still occasionally calls me, sir, to which I can reply, youngster, befitting seniority at the time. Now I'm simply older. During the uh, late 60s and the early 70s, while I was uh, submarining off the coast of Khan, Paul was driving swift boats in the Mekong Delta. After that, Paul's career drew him into frequent uh, and intimate contact with the Oceanographic Research Enterprise. He served at ONR, the Office of Naval Research, which Roger Revelle had a great deal to do with uh, starting. He served at uh, ONR as first as Program Officer, then as Deputy to the Chief of Naval Research, and finally as Chief of Naval Research itself. And before his service as Chief of Naval Research, he commanded the Naval Research Laboratory, which was mentioned earlier, and upon reaching flag rank, uh, was Commander of Navy Meteorology and Oceanography Command, SINMOC. He was uh, instrumental in declassifying um, the geodetic mission of Geosat, which was an early satellite uh, altimeter, uh, satellite altimeter uh, system, which led to led on to uh, Topex Poseidon and the gravity satellite. This led Dave Sandwell here at Scripps and, uh, and Walter Smith now at NOAA to develop the first synoptic bathymetry of the oceans from space constrained by very sparse bathymetry data taken from ships, all that bathymetry, in fact, that's used now uh, as the seafloor representation in, uh, in Google Earth. He's a member of Medea, the environmental equivalent of Jason, and continues to work tirelessly to increase the breadth of view of oceanography. His final job in the Navy was as president of the National Defense University. In the past six years, he's been president of Monmouth University. Paul? Paul?
1: Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, before I start to talk, uh, I'm, I'm very honored to be back here at Scripps. I've been coming here for various reasons. Um, I will shamelessly leverage some of the themes of Roger Revelle's life to make a couple of points, and I will follow the topics assigned to me by Kathleen Britzman here in the <laughs> front row as I always have. A scientist by authority of the California Regents in 1936, a gentleman by authority of the Secretary of the Navy on the 30th of September 1936. Our first evidence that he kept his own counsel is from a letter from the Commandant of the 11th Naval District in 1940, which I quote, you were dropped from our correspondence course on Naval Regulations. <laughs> and repeated attempts that, or requests that you return a copy of Naval Regulations have failed. <laughs> small stuff for a big thinker, really small stuff. A big thinker who in the summer, summer of 1941 volunteered to move from sort of intermittent reserve status to full-time active roles as a naval officer just a step ahead of everybody else as usual and Chester W. Nimitz signed his appointment letter. He had remarkable wartime achievements some made with several people in this room here with you today. And those wartime achievements ended with two, I think, important events, the important bikini experiment and its Geophysical and biological observations, observations is a big word here, and the formation of America's first federal agency established to support civilian scientists, their ideas, and their institutions. The often mentioned already today office, office of Naval Research, ONR. And then after that, he came back here to where the Pacific rolls onto the California coast in these bluffs and beaches of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Deliberately, he set a course from innocence to war and back to innocence again. Now, many attributes characterize this man's career, and I'd like to celebrate just two of them today that are sort of special to me in my experience. First, is his demand that we observe the natural system and second more than most in our experience he grasped the important interrelationships of science and national policy first of course focusing on security policy because it was the war when he started this and he practiced it at high levels and in other fields throughout his entire life his understanding that civilian and military naval ocean uh, ocean challenges are not discrete and that we must help each other observe and understand our global ocean system was unusual and is today worthy of celebration. First let me talk about observing. From his earliest cruise in Carnegie to important West Coast harbor surveys at the beginning of World War II that actually delayed him from going and working on the classified bathothermograph program later in the war, to bikini at the end of the war, to support for Keeling, to encouragement for his great friend, Walter Monk, in his acoustic thermometry brilliance, and more. He championed the need to observe and comprehensively measure in order to gain understanding. Now many bureaucrats, including me, including me recently, cry for funding research first to understand the basic natural principles, processes, of our world environment in selected areas. And then, after we understand that, then to go off and systematically observe those processes in some routine, comprehensive, long time series, operational manner. I say I would say that Dr. Ravel might judge such rigid, stepwise thinking as being as trivial as returning his copy of the naval, regu- of naval Regulations in 1940. I would assert that he would see value in both an ocean experiment's singular results and also argue for the systematic routine efforts to observe key phenomena over large expanses of geography and large expanses of time. Observe, sir, observe. That was number one with him, I think. Second was this interrelationship of science and policy. We celebrate this rare understanding of an extraordinary experience with the American civilian scientist's contributions to national defense and policy. And of course, vice versa, because I think he understood the opposite of that, the contributions of national security to science. Investing in civilian-led science for national needs was controversial thinking in the beginnings of World War II, and thank God for decisive people like Vannevar Bush, the President of the United States, and a few, just a few, enlightened naval persons. Benefit accrued from mobilizing those civilian minds immediately in that war. But then, to institutionalize that notion for a post-war America, in 1946, in an, in an enduring office, o r was not simple. It was not simple. Even after enormous civilian contributions were acknowledged during that war. And maintaining that lofty notion for 63 years, as Ed mentioned earlier today, has been difficult indeed. Not everyone gets it or got it in those 63 years, despite the undeniably rich track record. Read the early history of ONR. See what Roger Revelle, the first head of the geophysics geophysics division, and his fellow organizers of ONR did in those days to create trust in the wide university world, to support world-class research when no other country, in fact, no other agency, could at that time, to develop the earliest principles of federal grantsmanship in basic and applied research, and moreover to, moreover, to invent something called block grants to top institutions, something that we've talked about many times, Ed, to ensure that the requisite infrastructure was also there, and in our case, to provide the wherewithal to measure our broad and deep ocean. And to set an example not always followed these days for a revolving system of scientists entering government service, spending their time steering the boat, and then returning to the academy to row. But I also said just a few minutes ago, vice versa. And he would agree that the security community could also contribute to resolving broader national, including global, science challenges. Because he saw it firsthand. And he understood that defense and intelligence, a bit smeared and merged, if you will, during World War II, does have a way of zeroing in on some huge challenges once in a while. And we are seeing that now with, with climate. Actually, we started to reap benefits of defense and intelligent involvement in the climate issue as early as 1990. He would also, I think, understand that the Defense Department has some talent, several here in this room. In fact, Roger Ravel's successor is the head of the geophysics division. Frank Herr is with us today in this audience someplace. And he would agree that this community, this security community, has reach, certainly all around the world and pretty much from pole to pole, but also thousands of feet down and tens of thousands of miles up. And it has oomph. It has political oomph, it has resource, resource oomph, and it has technical oomph. Now, allow me to bring these Ravel toolkit themes together a little bit, observing and the vital civil security relationship. I'll use the contemporary issue of con- con- climate change contemporary politically and maybe contemporary in a newsworthy sense, but, obviously, we all know a revel topic since the 1950s. Military and intelligence scholars, without judging the cause for, or laying blame for, or predicting the cure for climate change, are increasingly and publicly concerned that climate trends as we understand them today even if they just continue in a linear fashion, can fuel instability instability in many parts of the world. Flooding from rains and an altered weather pattern, glacial melt, sea level rise, drought and result in famine and disease, not to mention the rage of storm, will set in motion destabilizing migrations of increasingly desperate peoples the lesser developed nations will be least likely to be able to cope with this slow grinding situation. To quote astronaut and former NASA administrator, Dick Truly, Regional uh, tensions are sure to grow, crises to multiply, and the fight for water or the fight to escape from it will set up new and unique border challenges. Now armed forces historically and normally are called in to manage violent crises, sometimes with violence. That can mean warfare-like operations. It can and probably will increasingly as we go forward in this world mean more humanitarian missions because of what you've heard in the last couple of hours and maybe border management missions. Defense material investments in the kinds of ships and sensors and weapons that we have will change as, as may the mission mix between warfighting fighting and humanitarian exercises and, and border management. And I have not even mentioned the specter of a year-round mostly navigable Arctic, an opportunity that Rick Spinrad discussed with you a little bit, but with also tactical and logistical and political jurisdictional consequences, and inevitable resource implications even for a wealthy Defense Department. These are becoming important concerns for the intelligence and military organizations, not sideline issues. Look at the report that the Center for Naval Analyses did just over a year ago, and immediately following that, CIS, CSIS, another report, and then the still classified but a uh, report from the CIA, all on the relationship between national security and climate. More frequently these days, important people are saying, well, we may not be highly certain or even convinced about the climate change trajectory, but we do know that if we have climate change, it can have serious regional security implications. Therefore, it can have U.S. and allied military implications and therefore we must plan for it. And in my opinion, if we are going to put this in plans, that means we're serious about it, we need to have a little bit more specificity in both time and geography so that the planners can actually make recommendations to allies and deploy and make investments appropriately. That is not sufficient yet and I think you've talked about that already a little bit here. So, yes, Dr. Ravel, the scientifically curious wandering of acoustic, acoustic energy in the sea was a big deal in defending against and eventually defeating the Nazi U-boats in World War II. And a big deal still in thwarting the Soviet strategic ballistic missile submarines in the Cold War. So yes, again today, Dr. Ravel, climate hypotheses are very curious scientifically and they too have international security implications that may be as serious as losing control of sea lanes or defaulting to nuclear instability in earlier generations. So. If climate is such a big deal to most of the scientific community, and if its effects could become a very big deal for the security of our nation, then why don't we follow some fundamental revelisms? Let's collect data to understand climate's trajectory, and let's do discrete experiments, like more acoustic thermometry. It might even be a good idea to think about doing that in the Arctic, which we've heard a little bit about today. Let's do more keeling and let's start NSF's long-delayed but on the verge of coming ocean-observing initiative. And for God's sakes, let's start to to measure operationally and systematically, at least on our coast, by funding as a high priority the regional associations, that make up the integrated ocean observing system of this country now i think you scientists are convinced that climate change is a problem that we must understand and with which we must deal and i think national security leaders in the cia we just hear testimony recently from both the the new director of the cia and the director of national intelligence and from the Congress and from the Defense Department, I think that these people are alert enough to the issue that climate change will become a serious feature in military strategic and military resource planning. Because, as Newt says, now I want to keep this absolutely politically even today, as Newt says, we cannot afford to be wrong. We cannot afford to be wrong. What can we afford? We can afford to reawaken a concept conceived by then-Senator Al Gore, who you will honor later today, and accepted by then-CIA Director, now Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, nearly 20 years ago. And that is to leverage the substantial oomph of the intelligence and defense organizations, the national security community of this country, to observe key environmental constituents needed to better understand and measure climate change. And ladies and gentlemen, while we are leveraging, and we can, carefully and deliberately, we do it, we can do it, without risking national security. We have done that before, we can continue to do it. For example, in the period 1990 to 2000, very safely, the Navy, declassified as John told you, the geosat altimetry data and thanks actually to the relentless pressure of John Orcutt. It also took submarine data collected for generations between the Bering Sea and the North Pole and developed databases from that that could be then those derived at derived information could be made available to the civilian community. That area in which that work was done was called the Gore box. And tens of thousands of simple hydrographic stations, temperature and salinity with depth at various times in various places around the world and models made from them were made available to the rest of the world. And then the most remarkable thing happened. After convincing the Defense Department in the US Navy to do this kind of thing, then Vice President Gore convinced his counterpart in Russia to take the new Russian Navy, well it was an old Navy, but it was a new Russia, to do the same thing, to look at their data holdings and see if they might be able to be released. And the U.S. Navy and the Russian Navy took all of their Arctic data, made unclassified information from that and created an atlas of sea ice, weather, and oceanography, made it unclassified, revealed it, we gave it to NOAA which now manages it uh, for the world. I think this is remarkable. Not only convincing the US security community to do this, but then our longtime rival, the rival of my entire life. It was fabulous, it was safe, it was cheap, and it was good. Should we be looking at these opportunities again? Turns out we never completely stopped. In the late 1990s, cleared scientists, some three or four in this room, established pulse points, or fiducial points, around the globe for routine observations over a long time series from space. And since just before the year 2000, the intelligence community has been quietly and automatically, they probably didn't even know they were doing it, collected satellite data over a number of, of those predetermined pulse points in the high arctic at very interesting resolutions and new resolutions for science, I'm told. They have, that information has now been compiled and released to all of you. A useful and unintended consequence, maybe, but should we be looking at these opportunities comprehensively again to see what might happen? I say yes, and I say that Roger Revelle would say yes if climate change is so important and good observations are so important to our understanding of it, why would not our government leverage every agency, every useful source, every useful platform, every resolution, every wavelength to understand more and measure better? And I guess, if I believe, uh, the Wall Street Journal on Wednesday morning when I got on the plane in Newark. I guess we're about to make some policies about climate change that may affect our life quality and maybe your bank account and your business and your behavior. Well, if we craft these difficult climate-related policies in a 6,000-point Dow world, Should we not be making provisions? Should we not have an obligation to make provisions to measure the effect of those policies on the climate by using every source of information? Every source. I think so. I hope you do. Dr. Ravel, thank you for what you did for my Navy and for our country for your focus on observing the natural interactions of our global system and for recognizing that widely different kinds of communities can be effective partners. Your climate warning nearly 50 years ago demands today our best efforts using the best tools of innocents and warriors. Thank you.